Good morning and welcome to Christ the King, especially if you are our guest this morning. Fair warning, uh, I have never actually preached a sermon on the Trinity. I uh, went back through my growing sermon files and nothing, just not one sermon. Uh, ten years here, preaching regularly and being a curate at the Falls Church, I just didn't touch the subject. And I probably didn't touch the subject for the same, by the way, Trinity, when we mean when we say Trinity, we'll talk more about this, uh, but one God and three persons of that one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's three, two reasons that I just don't touch the subject from the pulpit, uh, and probably two, a couple of two reasons that would resonate to you as well. Reason number one, I haven't preached on this subject. Reason number one, you probably haven't thought about it that much, is that it's just kind of confusing. I mean, the, the, the mathematics of it all simply uh, do not seem to make sense. The second reason, if it's not just the confusion, uh, it's, simp- it's the uh, fear of irrelevance. Even if it is true, then what? kind of so what? Uh, and I think for those two reasons are the two reasons that I haven't preached on it, and I'm guessing are the couple of reasons why you really haven't thought about it, it being the Trinity. Well, if there is a Sunday to think about the Trinity, it's today. Uh, surprise, this is a, one of the major seven celebrations, celebrations within the life of the church. This is Trinity Sunday. Uh, the perfect day for us to turn our thoughts to that subject. So a little bit of background. We're in a sermon series called Great Celebrations. The season of Easter concludes with three very important celebrations. So 40 days after Easter, Jesus uh, rose from the grave on Easter morning, and for 40 days he uh, visited to his disciples, and then he ascended into heaven 40 days later. So that's the celebration of ascension two weeks ago. Then... One week later, roughly one week later, Pentecost, another great celebration uh, when Jesus sent his presence to you and me through his spirit. So the second great celebration is Pentecost. And now the third great celebration that we're going to turn to today is the first Sunday of what we call ordinary time. So we're out of Easter, we're just into what's called ordinary time, and the first day of this new season is the celebration of the Trinity. It's the day when we're supposed to turn our thoughts to the very nature of God, and especially his triune nature. And I hope that we will, if you think, huh, the Trinity, one and three, three and one, it seems illogical, it seems irrelevant, if you need to repent like I needed to repent, I hope that we'll come to the conclusion that that word seems is in fact appropriate, that uh, there's nothing illogical about our confession of our three-in-one God, and further, it is an extremely relevant subject for us in any time. So those will be the two points that I want to address. The seeming uh, confusion or the seeming lack of logic behind our Trinitarian confession, and then I want us to think about the relevance of the Trinity. So... Let's jump right in. The confusion around the Trinity. One God, three persons. Thomas Jefferson, third president, author of the 
Declaration of Independence, of course, also was an entrepreneur in Christian doctrine. That's never a good thing to be an entrepreneur in Christian doctrine. He wrote this, when we have done away with the incomprehensible jargon of Trinitarian arithmetic, one and three and three and one, when we have, here's a good line, when we have unlearned everything that has been taught since Jesus' day and got back to the pure and simple life that he inculcated, then we shall truly be his disciples. Doesn't that sound nice? Wouldn't that be just great if we could... You see what he's saying? He's saying there's been all these accretions and all these additions and these old kind of dusty white guys, they made up these rules and they put things in place like the doctrine of the Trinity. And if we could just get away from that and could just do what Jesus did, wouldn't that be much better? And we think, oh, yes, that, wouldn't that be nice? It's, it's, it's not. It's, it's, a, it's a pipe dream. It, it, Christianity by its nature is a creedal faith. What we believe has been codified and has been, co- has been codified and should be affirmed. We are a creedal faith, by, and every faith is a creedal faith. It's defined by parameters of uh, what we hold to be true. So how do we, let's address that assertion of Jefferson. How do we get to the, something like the doctrine of the Trinity? Remember what he suggested? It was just this old, dusty, white guy sitting, sitting around a table thinking, huh, let's just think of something crazy. Uh, in other words, there's a later addition to Christian faith. Is that what happened? No, not at all. How did we get the word Trinity in the Christian faith? Two very quick reasons. While the word Trinity is never found in the Bible, you'd search in vain for the word Trinity, the idea of the Trinity is very much present in, within the Scriptures. Just a couple of examples. Consider the passage that we read, or heard read, of uh, Jesus, the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Then God, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, go into all nations and baptize them in the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three different persons, yet one name. Think of how Jesus begins his ministry. We didn't read the passage, but he begins his ministry with what's called the baptism. And in the baptism, the Son comes out of the water. The Spirit descends like a dove. And the voice from heaven, the voice from the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Or the way the Apostle Paul concludes his ministry, Letter to the Second Corinthians. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God, may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, three different persons, be with you all forevermore. So while the word Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible, the reality of the Trinity is clearly expressed. It captures the biblical testimony. But secondly, and I think more importantly, this seemingly illogical statement of one God and three persons is a perfect reflection of the experience of the early Christians. In other words, the early Christians were Trinitarian long before they knew what Trinitarian was. They worshipped God the Father. Remember, they were all from a Jewish heritage. And to this Jewish heritage, which was, if anything, very rabid about monotheism, they added without pause, without hesitation, the worship of another, Jesus Christ, his son. And to the worship of Jesus Christ was added the the worship of his presence, the Holy Spirit. You see, they were functional Trinitarians. Long before the doctrine was codified, and by the way, the same is true for you, if you are a If you are a follower of Christ, you are implicitly a Trinitarian Christian. Whether you know it or not, 
Think about it. You are a Christian because God the Father has called you. You are a Christian because God the Son has paved the way for you, opened the way to the Father through his work upon the cross. You are a Christian because the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, calling you to himself. You are a Trinitarian Christian, whether you know it or not. Every prayer you pray is a Trinitarian prayer, praying to God the Father, through Jesus Christ the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every worship song we sing is a worship song to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God and three persons of that one God. And in the year 450 A.D., the church codified the real experience, the actual experience of the universal church when we wrote this. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And yet, there are not three gods but one. The Godhead of the Father, the Godhead of the Son, the Godhead of the Holy Ghost is all one, all equal in glory. None is before the other in time. None is greater or lesser than the other in majesty. That written in the year 450 A.D. But again, do not think that this was just composed out of whole cloth by a bunch of dusty old guys. This was simply the practice of the universal church by which I mean the universal church, what most Christians have believed in most parts of the world through most of time. Yeah, there are a few variants. There always have been. There are some outliers. There was the monk Sibelius who said that, you know, God just acted in three different ways. At first he acted as God the Father, then he acted as God the Son, next he acted as God the Holy Spirit. No, no. Then there was Arian who suggested that God was first and then came Jesus and then came the Holy Spirit. No, there's always been outliers, but I want us to be confident that there is such a thing as a universal faith. What most Christians have confirmed through most parts of, through most of history and through most of the globe. And that was simply codified and recognized, not created in the latter half of the 5th century. So that's how it came to be. Secondly, it's not that illogical. Not at all. One God, three in one. Sure, we could sniff at that and say, like Jefferson did. Trinitarian arithmetic. But one can mean all sorts of things, can't it? You, you can say one, meaning one, not two. One as a singularity. But often one can mean one and uniquely one. When we say in the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That is emphasizing not his singularity, but his uniqueness. He's the only one. Your God, Yahweh, he is unique, the only one. Further, we often would include a plurality within a unity, don't you? All the time. We are one nation under God. One nation, but many people of one nation. A family full of one members, yet one family. Uh, the, the biblical image of the consummation of marriage, the two people will become one flesh. Still uh, one, but a plurality within the one. And do me a favor and play a chord for me. So what do you hear? What do you hear in that? Get it one more time, just the whole chord. What do you hear? You hear a chord. What is that chord composed of? Three separate notes. Let's hear the three separate notes again. It is no more illogical to assert that in our one God there are three persons than to assert in one chord there are three notes. 
So to recast our first point, the doctrine of the Trinity is not some later and foreign and illogical addition to the Christian faith. Instead, the doctrine of the Trinity is a logical expression of the beliefs and practices of the universal church and of your beliefs and practices, even though you may not know it. So the first reason we may not think too much about this subject, why I may not preach about this subject, is it's seemingly lack of logic. I hope we can see that that's not the case. Fine, you may think the Trinity is not illogical. That seems to be a pretty low bar to cross. Is there anything else we can say that would commend this doctrine to you and me? Any other reason why you and I should celebrate Trinity Sunday? And yes, there is. So we move on to the question of relevance. How is this doctrine relevant to you. It is relevant, and here's how. Everything that you and I want to believe about God is absolutely dependent upon his Trinitarian nature. Absolutely everything that you hope to be true about God. What is the one virtue that you prize more than any other? What's the one thing that you want to receive more than any other from another person? What is the one attribute that we hope is at home in God? What is it? Not that God is just, not that God is holy, but instead that God is love. Right? God is love. And that, of course, is what the Bible affirms in 1 John chapter 4. But let's pause and think about this. We may be so familiar with that sentiment that God is love that we have forgotten some of the obvious implications. So engage in this little thought exercise that is attributable to St. Augustine. What does love require? What do you need first in order to love? Any speculations? Any hands? What do you need first and foremost in order to love something as you need something to love? Love is an intransitive verb. It only makes sense when it has a direct object attached to it. David loves what? God loves. God loves what? More than just another, mature love requires an equal, a peer. You cannot love a pet in the same way you would love another human being. You can show kindness to a pet. You can show compassion to a pet. You can show mercy to a pet. But, but because a pet is less than you or me, you and we cannot have a loving relationship with something that is just less than. Love requires a peer. And love requires... Love requires another, and it requires that, not, that other to be a peer, an equal. And once we realize that love must have another equal object for ourselves and in, and in God, then we have the germ of that distinction in that statement that God is love, which is theologically known as the Trinity. If God, you follow the logic, if God is love, then God must have relationships within himself that are eternally adequate and eternally worthy. 
By way of comparison, think of the strict monotheists. I don't bring up other religions by way of critiquing, but simply by way of contrasting. Think of the strict monotheists, the God of Allah, or the God of Islam, Allah. I don't, my familiarity is very limited, but I know there's one primary virtue that Muslims attribute to Allah, and that is what? God is merciful, right? Mercy is good. And certainly we affirm that God is merciful. But mercy is something that a greater gives to a lesser. Mercy is good, but love is better. And the God of Islam cannot be loved because he has no one to love. It is the societal nature of our triune God which makes him capable of love and why G.K. Chesterton asserts this, that this triple enigma, our Trinitarian belief, while it may baffle the intellect, is as comforting as wine and as open as an English fireside. For Chesterton writes, it is not well for God to be alone. Just consider with me how the Bible depicts the relationships within the Trinity. Several different ways. God, Jesus is referred to as the image of God. Jesus is referred to as the Word of God. But perhaps the image that we're most fond of is that Jesus is the Son and God is the Father. John Paul II writes this, Our God in his deepest mystery is not solitude, but a family. For God has within himself fatherhood and sonship and the essence of the family which is love. That love in the divine family is the Holy Spirit. Take away the Trinity. You take away God's capacity to love. Take away God's capacity to love and you take away the Christian faith. Because our faith is rooted in the hope that God is love. And that in his love, he gave the, his son for the whole world. To the question of relevance, the relevance of the Trinity is simply this. The high bar for our relationships among those who follow Christ, the high bar of how we should interact with one another is none other than the relationships we see in the Trinity. What a beautiful picture that within the church there would be a relationships of equality, no patronization, no condescension, dissension, but to engage with others as real human beings worth your time. Peer to peer. Secondly, loving, like the Father honors the Son, like the Son exalts the Father. The Trinity is not just a doctrinal pill to swallow. The Trinity is a thing of beauty. Father, Son, bound together by the spirit of love. Something to behold, something even to emulate. So let me draw our thoughts to a conclusion. This again from G.K. Chesterton, who describes this scene. Two boys take a walk through the forest. On their walk, they come across an old stone wall. The first boy asks with incredulity, why is this wall here? It's old. It doesn't serve any purpose. 
Let's ignore it. Let's go around it. Let's act like it didn't exist. On the other hand, the second boy asks with humility, there must be a reason that someone put a wall here. No one builds a wall for no reason. So the second boy asks, why is that wall here? Today is Trinity Sunday. It was such a seemingly confusing and seemingly irrelevant subject. It would be easy to think just like that first boy. An old tradition commemorating some dusty doctrine. Let's just ignore it. Let's act like it didn't exist. But the second boy was wiser. Just because it is old does not mean that it is wrong. Just because it is tradition does not mean that it is irrelevant. Our response should be the response of the second boy. Why would someone put a wall here? Why did the church in its 2,000-year-old and 2,000-year-strong tradition establish this as the one day that we should celebrate the triune nature of our one God? Well, let me capitulate and then conclude. The Trinity is a perfectly logical codification of the practices and beliefs of the universal church, not a late foreign and a logical addition to the Christian faith. Further, it is in the societal nature of our triune God, which is essential, absolutely essential, if what we hope for most is to be true. That is that God is love. So let's be Trinitarian Christians today and all days, worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in glory, equal in majesty, equal in eternity, distinct in their persons, one God in glory everlasting. Amen.